everyone. Welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it lessons from our living rooms or couch conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including, well, what do I say when? And well, what do I do when? So that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. Well, welcome everyone, and thanks for joining this episode today. We are going to be talking with Beth Hall of PACT Adoption Agency in California, and I am thrilled, 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 thrilled to have her here today. PACT has been a lifeline um, for my own family and my professional development. And so it is nothing but an honor and a privilege to invite Beth to come and sit and talk today about untold stories in the world of transracial adoption and really preparing parents and caregivers to be able to show up fully for our kids. So Road Less Traveled today is going to speak specifically to transracial adoption. So welcome, Beth. Thanks for joining today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, just give a teeny bit of background, like tell us a little bit about what brings you here. Well, um, like you, the largest reason I'm here is because of my own personal choices in life. I am an adoptive parent. I, my children recently informed me I'm no longer allowed to call them young adults because they're both in their thirties. <laughs> they're legit adults now, <laughs> they've informed me. Uh, but both were adopted transracially by my husband and I, who are both white. My eldest, my daughter, is Latinx, and my youngest, my son, is African-American, so they are also different races than one another, which is its own complexity, (laughs) but that means that as two white people, we were parenting children of color who are facing racialized um, everything, (laughs) and of course, also the complexities of adoption and those are intersected in interesting ways. So I started PACT when, uh, right before my daughter was born, but we knew we were going to be adopting transracially and there was nothing out there for families like mine. But what we also discovered, I had a partner that started PACT with me, Gail Steinberg, and what we also discovered is there was really nothing or very little in adoption that focused on children of color. And at the time, this was in the late 80s, there was a notion that um, black and brown people don't adopt 
and white people do. And so somehow, which is effectively a white savior model of adoption, right? Mm -hmm. And so therefore very problematic. And that just seemed unacceptable. And so we decided to start a nonprofit to focus on children of color and adoption and their needs, which necessarily meant a growth in education around transracial adoption rather than sort of one and done attitude like you adopt this child good luck hope that works out but acknowledging it as a lifelong issue but also thinking about communities of color why are there more children what are the socioeconomic and social issues political issues that lead to that why are is it true parents of color don't adopt as much it's not true as it turns out black families adopted about twice the rate of white families but we have that perception, and that usually means, as it does in this case, that there's barriers, right? So, so we wanted to look at the whole of that and serve all of those constituencies, and that's what PAC does. Great. Well, yeah, and you're already touching on some of the, the complexity in having these conversations. And I, I thought today, since you spend so much of your time kind of steeped in it, um, what are, what are you seeing, right? The focus of these conversations is to be thinking about parents who are um, on the journey of transracial adoption. So for folks who are, who are toward the beginning of that or have younger kids, or what, what stands out to you in the themes that come up from people who are seeking um, services from PAC? What, what jumps out as, as a need for more conversation? Well, I would start with saying that that many of the families that don't adopt through PACT, which is most of the families we work with, um, come to us and when they come, we have a, a, a support, virtual support group that meets once a month, stuff like that, uh, for transracial parents. We have a Facebook community. When they are talking there, very often they have still, this is remember more than 30 years after I adopted, they are still kind of given their child, said, tell, nowadays I think people are told race matters, but they don't, are not trained what to do about that <laughs> and how to, to take a next step. So in the same way, you know, white people all over the country since the murder of George Floyd and, and this sort of racial reckoning that we've been going through, uh, might be saying, this is terrible. I want to somehow be an ally as opposed, you know, I want to be anti-racist. But very often those of us that are white don't really know how to accomplish that or what that means or what that looks like. And often what, what I'm finding is that parents are still coming in with a set, white people are still coming in with a notion that perhaps it's impolitic, maybe rude, maybe even racist, to talk about race, which of course means we're not practicing very much because we're afraid of all those things, which in the long run, what I know in terms of child development of all people of color, all children of color, and particularly adopted and fostered youth of color, that means that we are going to be even less effective as parents, which nobody wants to be. So we are not doing them a service in terms of preparation. Most people have a few hours or maybe a day of training about many issues, not just transracial adoption. That's a joke. That's, and it's, it's wrong. <laughs> so now I hold my own profession, if you will, very much more responsible than I probably did 30 years ago. <laughs> so that's where it starts for me. But what I'm hearing from families is questions about, you know, when does this matter? When do I start talking about this, that, or the other thing? And very often, their assumptions, our assumptions as white people, is to start talking when we kind of remember that we first noticed these things. The problem is our developmental timeline is very, very different than people of color. So what happens is their kids have already gone through that phase. And if their parents aren't talking to them about it, they assume, like children assume everything, that that's on purpose, that adults always do things on purpose, Therefore, it must not be something they should be talking about. And they get their information elsewhere. Friends, the playground, the park. If 
I don't know many parents that are really attentive and really invested in parenting who actually think that's how they want their children to learn about things. <laughs> so that's a problem, right? Which means, of course, we have to learn how to talk about hard things, including racial reality, which includes racism and, you know, white supremacy. You have to learn to even say those words, you know, as a white person, I don't know about you, for me, when I first started using that term, it was a little jarring because I didn't really want to be a white supremacist. I didn't want to have to look at whether or not I participated in that. You know, I've evolved, but it took work. Yeah, and I think I think that's a great point that, that the semantics in these things, you know, matter in that, that I, yeah, my upbringing would have suggested that white supremacists were hooded people in a very isolated right. area with my own biases about who, you know, right. are white supremacists. And it certainly wasn't me or, or people around me. And I think that's one of the biggest leaps too in, in doing this work and can only, in my estimation, be a support to adoptive families is the recognition of the systemic stuff. Like you are Absolutely. on a mill, you are on a conveyor <laughs> belt, right? That's right? You stepped on it when you entered this world and it's a belt that winds differently from others. And if you don't look around at what's happening to you and fight the stream and fight the motion that you're on, um, you're, you're going to do a disservice to your child who needs you to recognize that and be able to name it. I often hear too from the parents that I work with that they're, they're waiting for an event, right? There's this really interesting thing that, that happens. And I think especially for little kids, cause I, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of what I've seen is that kids like four, three, preschool age, when they're going to preschool, other kids are curious, they're noticing racial differences. That's and right. then, then your adoptive child starts to be like, wait, we don't look, why is my skin like this? And, and it's quite common in that age range for transracial adoptees to say, I, I don't want my brown skin. I don't like my nose. That's I right. want your <laughs> long nose, mom. I want, I wish I looked like you, you know, that kind of stuff. And so if you're parenting a child that you're watching and you're listening to them say, I don't feel good about the color of my skin, or I don't like this, or I wish that this were different. The thought of piling on to that by saying, guess what? Other people might respond to you unfairly and with biases based on these same features. Sorry, kiddo. Like, obviously it's not that cavalier, but because of that worry of like, wait, if I know enough to know I have a child who's struggling to develop healthy identity, why would I introduce the idea of, of racism and, and lesser than and assumptions about aggression and sexuality and, and, and danger Absolutely. and all of those it's, things? I think that happens all the time, Laura. And I think it, it maybe goes even further than that. And what I mean by that is there's a notion, and I get asked this question often, if you bring something up, I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? We understand with two-year-olds, name it to tame it. That's like an adage, right? I mean, we know they can't be expected to stop wanging the kid that takes the fire truck from them over the head with the fire truck or whatever, unless we talk about it, right? We teach them words so they can eventually begin to recognize their own emotions and eventually control them, or at least, if not always control, you know, begin to recognize and do something with them, right? That's called emotional regulation, as opposed to dysregulation, where I hit the kid, <laughs> right? We all still feel like hitting the kid or whomever is bothering us occasionally, but we have regulation skills. And yet in this, we're afraid that somehow if I introduce the topic of racism, I'm actually inserting it into my child's reality rather than naming it to tame it. So <laughs> I think we have to push back against that notion. And for me, what I often do with parents of young children is use examples like, do you wait for your child to ask you if it's safe to run in the street, particularly if you're like me and you live in an urban setting, or do you live with the fact that there's some fear involved in telling them the street is not safe? And if so, why do you do that? 
I do that because I do not want them to die. I consider it life or death. Do I wait for something to happen with regard to private touch before I talk to very young children? Actually, before four, usually at two or something, right? So very young children, to say to them, it isn't okay for people to touch you that way. And oh, by the way, for you to touch other people that way, it's a private place or however you talk about it, right? Again, we don't make the number one factor be whether or not that scares them, whether or not they have a reaction to them. They do. And in fact, we want them to. If we think race matters, which I firmly do, and every piece of research legitimate research I know of says does, if we believe that, then how is it that we can exempt this same principle from this conversation? And I think that's where we adults have to really look at ourselves and say, it, does it maybe relate to the fact that I'm not comfortable talking about this? Am I fearful of what it's going to do to my child and to me and our relationship if we aren't the same all the time? So I think, you know, we have to look to ourselves. And again, that I'm not, a, you know, parenting is the most humbling experience of my life without a doubt. <laughs> and I've had other hard experiences, but nothing compares to parenting, <laughs> nothing. So it's not about shaming ourselves ever. I, I think, you know, we can spend a minute going, shoot, I made a mistake, but it, it, we have to just rid ourselves of that baggage pretty quickly and keep moving forward, knowing we're going to make mistakes and all those things. But I, I just think we must look into ourselves. These notions about um, the status quo, the, the guilt we may or may not feel, as you say, racists were people like Ku Klux Klan members. Mm -hmm. That's how I saw it too. And the truth is we don't, we often uh, conflate liberalism with anti-racism. That's just not true. Any more than conservatism equals racist. It's, it's just not true. And if we can't dig into those truths, it's going to be really hard to serve a child of color effectively and help them find their way. So what I would say is, even with very young kids, my strategy is... We, our job as parents is to teach values. How do we teach values? We say things like, did you know that some people think that the color of your skin makes you better or worse? Isn't that awful? Of course, in our family, we don't believe that. That's when I'm teaching values, right there, that very statement. And my kid right then may be interested or they may want a cookie right now, but they will come back to it if I'm dropping it every so often. Not every minute of every day. It's not the only conversation we're going to have. But it also is not absent. And I'm certainly not going to wait for them to ask me. Because I know it is a matter of life or death. It is absolutely essential that they understand who they are. And that they understand that the world is not always safe in particular ways. But we believe that, that that's not true. So it starts there for me with discussion of values. And the truth is, by the time you get to the teen years, which are fun in a whole different way and complicated in a whole different way with kids, you're actually talking about the same exact stuff, just in a more complex way. But you're always talking about values. What are our values around these things? And the only way you can do that and have true empathy and true, truly support an identity is to understand it if it's not one you share. And even if you share it, you don't share it the same way. You and I are both women, but we don't travel the world in the exact same way, right? Right. So, right. No, no, I think that's really important that it that it is that that this is a place that may call for a little bit of a clarifying boundaries around like in our sphere, in our family, we value this. In our family, we celebrate skin color differences. In our family, that's we right. know that that there's a lot out there you know history has taught people you know wrong information and and like all at once kind of painting why it is that these views are out there setting the stage for the systemic stuff i think you know i remember talking about when we were driving around in some of the um you know areas in in 
Oakland in the Bay Area. And and my kid at the age of six or seven asking about why there appeared to be, you know, more graffiti or rundown buildings and, and talking about redlining and well, banks won't give money sometimes right. to people. And like you can, you know, sort of what to say when. Those are some key ways to talk about. Sometimes people think less of, or sometimes people think that, that people with black uh-huh. and brown skin get angrier faster. Um, and we know that's ridiculous. And we know that they need to be able to change their way of thinking. And I wish I could do it tomorrow. You know, if I had a magic wand, I would erase that thinking for, you know, forever. And mm, in the meantime, yeah, it's a bummer that it's out there somewhere, right? Red That's right. Banks won't give I remember yeah. kids by very young ages, certainly by six and seven, and oftentimes earlier. What is their like number one worldview? They're the fairness police. That everything is about what's there and what's not. That's another word for social justice. That's what that means. Fairness, equity, right? It's not equal. It's certainly not diversity, which is not it alone. That's just a means to an end, in my view. Yeah. It's about equity, fairness, and justice. So, so they are primed at the pump for this, these conversations. But it, not if we're not having them. Right. You're going to assume if we don't notice things, if we don't say anything about things, that we think it's okay. You know, I remember when my kids were little, you know, we would go, I don't know where, the dry cleaner. And the, some lady walks in at the same time, or maybe a little before us even, person of color, right? Who does the person behind the counter wait on? Often it was me, yeah. even with my kids with me, right? Yeah. So, you know, even though we came in at the same time, or as I said, maybe I came in second, actually. Yeah. And, you know, so I might say to that person at the counter, you know, I think she might have come in first, or why don't you go ahead and wait on her first? And maybe we do that. Maybe lots of you all do that. But then we don't do the second part. We don't walk back out (laughs) and turn to our kids who might be, you know, four and six or whatever they are and say, did you notice what happened in there? Did you hear what that man said or what that woman, you know, whatever happened, whatever it was. I just used this example, but there's a billion of them. Did you hear what the lady in the grocery store asked us about our family? All the things, right? We don't have that follow-up conversation where our kids might say, no, what happened? I tell them. Or, I, yes, mom, we get it. You know, this is what my kids went. <laughs> yes, no, my kids did. <laughs> they, they didn't wait on her first, probably because she's a person of color. We don't believe that in our family. You know, so my kids would roll their eyes at me continuously. And at all of those ages, and maybe even now, they would say, oh, yeah, she was talking about race. But I'll tell you something else. First of all, they knew what we thought. And now, as adults, legitimate adults, because they're in their 30s, right? Now, as adults, they absolutely do two things. They believe that we have their back. And they come to us when they experience directed racial bias or racism themselves. That's what we want as parents. We want them to feel we are a trusted partner. And since we look like the people who are perpetrating a lot of these things, we have to do double time, triple time, whatever to make up for it. And and if we start young, we have the opportunity to do it 10,000 times because that's what we do with all things with kids, which means we can practice and come back to them and say, you know, I said this and I really don't like that I put it that way. And I just want to point that out to you and apologize and I'm gonna to try to do better. Or maybe you have some suggestions for how I could respond to somebody at my work said this, somebody at the grocery store said this. I know you weren't there, but I was so stunned I didn't know what to say. And I feel bad about that. What do you think I should have said? Well, of course, by going to them, what we're doing is helping them train themselves about what they're gonna do when we're not there. And and it happens because that's going to happen a billion times to them. So we have to keep these conversations going. And I, I'm disappointed to say that my experience, people still aren't really being told that and, to, and given examples of how to talk about it without either being this huge, charged, negative, scary thing, you know, let's go watch. And by the way, you make those mistakes too. I did. I showed my son 
a movie that was wholly inappropriate, much too young. And, you know, he had to go come back and sleep in our bed for a year or something. You know, oh, well, <laughs> you know. But you know what? He's got a job. He's functional as a 30-year-old. So, you know, th- these things don't last forever. And, it's a marathon. But if you don't try, you also probably aren't getting it right. I think you have to be brave. It takes courage, doesn't it, to parent? <laughs> yeah, well, and I think, I think it really, the universe is going to provide us over and over again with mm-hmm. opportunities to say, what did you just notice there? What are you thinking about what you saw? Um, I didn't know what to say because so many of the things that get in, interjected into our lives are on the fly. Some are predictable, you know, others, others are, are not. Um, and so there is an element of having a few sayings in your head ready to go when people ask intrusive questions, when they ask if they're related, when they ask if it's the drug baby, when they ask, like right. these are the things. Um, and, and then there are the system pieces, right? Like, well, I didn't like what I just saw, or I'm not sure. That's the other thing to say. I Absolutely. really don't know. Some, my little gut is ringing, telling me that might have had a melanin thing going there, right? Like that That's might right. have had something to or do with it. Or they might disagree. They might say, you know what, mom, I think you were wrong that time. And being able to concede that too, you might be right. But I tend, you know, I mean, I would have conversations with my kids where I say, would just say, I feel like I have to be on the lookout because as a white person, nobody taught me this when I was younger. Yeah. So I'm trying to do a good job and I want you to be able to recognize what's real in the world, who you can trust and who maybe you have to be more careful about. And, and that's not, it's not that there's no good people in the world. It's just that not everybody is safe. <laughs> right. And not you everybody. You need to can. develop antenna that are different than the d- antenna I had to develop. And that we don't give kids credit. Like I remember when um, we, we uh, had the fortune of being in um, South Africa when Nelson Mandela passed away. And they, they, my friend that we were staying with lived half a mile from the place where all of the memorials were being set up. And so there was a lot happening in South Africa and friends and family were going to the memorials and we would swing by in the morning and look at all the painted rocks. And so I was trying to explain to my five-year-old who Nelson Mandela was. And that, you know, in the old days there was this system and white people, you know, were isolated and only went to schools and only, and they were really mean, you know, they were unfair uh, to black people or whatever. And, And so my child listened to that and then the next day, you know, didn't say much. And the next day we were driving in the car and he popped his thumb out of his mouth and said, you know what, mom, before with Nelson Mandela, would you have been one of the good white people? <laughs> right. And he was five. So, that's right. so like, that's that layer of, that's we right. Learn, oftentimes we learn as transracial adoptive parents, if we're looking and please let us be more and more, we are learning from the people leading the conversations about teaching kids about race. And they're often other people of color, which is awesome. And we need to keep learning from them and we need to keep listening and we need to keep believing. And there's that added layer of hundred percent. And you look like them. Like, so wait, are you, do you have some of these beliefs? When do they show up? How can I trust them? Are you going to tell me these things later? Are you making decisions based on those? And like at five that my kid was sorting that suggests that we don't, we don't give our kids enough credit for being able to handle. If we had asked you or asked me in the process, when do you think this will become relevant? You know, most of us might say something like 10. Right. And you would have then missed that conversation with your son when he was having it internally. So, you know, my son also asked that question around five. And part of the reason was we, I knew when he went to school, they were going to talk about slavery, Yeah, which is, of course, largely what mostly white people did to black people. We're white. My son's black. Obviously, I felt it was essential he heard about it from us first. And oh, by the way, I knew, because it's true personally, that on my father's side of the family, they owned a plantation, which means my 
I didn't know the people, but my ancestors, if you will. And in our family, we used ancestors a lot from very, very young ages, because of course this is highly relevant to adoptees, right? <laughs> is that there are multiple families that they are connected to. And in the case of transracial adoptees, we used it because we talked a lot about melanin, where skin color comes from, and it has to do with where your ancestors lived because there was more or less sun. So when we were comparing our skin colors, that's how we would talk about it in the bathtub when our kids were toddlers, right? So, so by the time we got to four or five before he went to kindergarten, I felt like we had talked about this. And at one point, sure enough, he says the same thing. But, you, but your family were part of the good white people. And I said to him, you know, sweetheart, I wish I could say that was true, but it's not. Now, I'd like to believe that maybe if I'd been alive then, I would have said, this is not right. But I don't actually know that because people get influenced by who they're around. Well, fast forward a couple of years later here in California, we had a, a vote on whether or not affirmative action should continue in colleges or not. And, uh, you know, I listened to a news station all the time in the car, which meant my children did also. So I would listen to NPR all the time. And they're talking about this, this vote that's coming up. And my daughter, so this is a couple of years later, my daughter is probably now eight, maybe even nine, something like that, is like, what is prop, whatever it was, you know, and asked, and, and I'm trying to think now, how do you explain this to a, whatever she wants, seven, a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old or a seven-year-old and eight-year-old, my kids are 18 months apart. And um, I say, you know, well, it's about colleges and they're trying to decide whether or not if there's fewer of some kinds, some different races of people, if they should let more of them in so it gets more equal. And this is my daughter. She pops up and says, yeah, they definitely should, because otherwise it'll just be friends of friends and everybody who's friends is going to be like their friends. So then you'll pretty soon you'll only have the same kind of people altogether. Now, if that isn't a succinct description of what affirmative action is trying to address, mm -hmm. I did not tell her that. That's what kids do. They put it together in concrete ways. Now, you know, I, probably my bias showed through a little bit of what I might have thought I we should do because I was for affirmative action in that case, but, but I absolutely didn't explain it in that way. She did. That's what kids are capable of if we are willing to have the conversations with them. And very often we're afraid we're going to get it wrong. You know, we're afraid we're going to say something wrong. Therefore, we don't say anything. And we forget that silence is a conversation too, especially with kids, although in truth, with adults as well. Yeah, and I think there's this worry too that if our children don't seem 100% okay with what we're saying. If everybody isn't fine with what was just said, right. then, then it's not a good it must thing. Must have been to do. a bad choice. Yeah. And, yeah, and there's this like integration piece. So I'm talking about redlining with a kid sucking their thumb right. in the backseat of the car. And now at age 12, and I'm still early, I'm not, you know, like it, but I, I see the fruits of the labor. And not that I've got it right every time to guess where we are, but like, of course, of but, course. but it's a, it is meeting the developmental stuff and laying it's really scaffolding and 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 framework and so when you have talked about um bank loans and and banks not lending people to, to people you know who are black and brown yeah. well why not yeah. well in the old days there was a you know people think that sometimes loans don't get paid back why was that because of bias and racism? It's happening right now. Yeah. Look, they just did this whole thing with assessments and finding out that there's a huge gap in terms of how homes in black and brown neighborhoods are assessed versus the exact same comparative home in a white neighborhood or with a known black owner versus a known white owner. I mean, so it's not like it's changed. I mean, that was true in the 50s and now it's true also in the 2021s, right? So it's, it, it, we can't ignore this. And you know what else is key? I mean, you're the psychologist, Laura, but, <laughs> but what I know is that for, what's, what's brilliant about those kind of conversations is we're not saying, what do you think about race to our children or, or tell me what I think about our relationship? We're talking about the system. When you talk about red line, you're not 
you're not only talking about them. And if you're talking about redlining, hopefully you're also talking about, you know, grab what you want, you know, Serena Williams and how amazing she is and what it means or jazz music or, you know, other, the positive contributions. And honestly, that's something I notice in transracial families too. We often, once we get quote unquote, and so since you can't see me, I'm going to tell you I'm putting quotation marks around this term because I actually rarely use it. I don't actually like it, but we get woke or we think we're woke, right? We think now, oh, okay, now I get it. Race matters. Now I'm going to go run around and prove that 24 seven and whatever. But what we often lead, so we get very um, invested in, I need to protect my child. So when they get stopped by the police, they won't get killed or whatever. We get all caught up in the challenges of a racist society. And those are real. We should pay attention to them. But they can't be all we pay attention to. We have to pay attention to how is it that black and brown communities have managed to survive against these just horrible odds, right? Well, by and large, they've done it because they are amazingly resilient and amazingly persistent. And we, our kids deserve that legacy as well. Right. And very often, we don't know how to transmit it because it's not taught in schools. It's, it's often passed down in families where we know that because, it, because they are people of color. But we don't know that as white people. We often may not have even heard it. So we don't necessarily know how to transmit that. And we can do some of that, but our children need to see that I not only value you as a black or brown person, I value other members of your community. I love that. I always say to people, who do you eat dinner with? Who do you worship or whatever form of worship you participate in? Who do you love? If those three don't include people who look like your child, you're setting up a dichotomy for them that they are going to have a hard time getting over. Yeah, I've seen it too many times because you fast forward to those teen years, those are the kids where I'm getting calls from parents saying, my kid is blowing up. My kid is tanking in school. My kid is so angry with me and calling me a racist. I'm not a racist because they didn't do the work with their two-year-old. Got it wrong, no doubt, lots of times, like you did, like you, you know, like yeah. I did. Yeah. But at least talked about it. So it's not the first time they're having the conversation where for the last 10 or 12 years or 14 years, that child has assumed that their parent goes along with the status quo of the racial climate of America. That's a problem. And I, and it plays out a lot in kids who are extremely troubled and either become super anxious and hypervigilant or very angry. And those things both are very difficult to deal with for them and, of course, for their parents. It sets up this, it's an interesting thing where it sets up this, like, exceptional Negro or exceptional Latinx, whatever, like, like, and there is, there is this sneaky thinking among good, and I'm going to according to white people who, who are like, you know, communities of color struggle because of lack of role models. And like, I've had multiple extended families say to me, well, but your child isn't going to experience some of the the hardships that we know are happening in Chicago or whatever. Right. And like, and these are well-meaning like first people who are like, right. Whatever it is. They all think they get it. Yes. And and, and, you don't understand that your child is Chicago. (laughs) Your child is that is George Floyd. And they, our kids know that. You know who Oscar Grant is here in the Bay area, black man that got shot on a BART station, which is a, uh, our local transport system and um, is very near where my kids grew up. When that happened, I think I think my daughter might have been in college. She might have still been in high school. My son either middle school or high school. I can't quite remember. But um, they immediately both, you know, contacted me in no doubt some electronic way, <laughs> saying, "Did you hear about this? It happened on New Year's Eve." And we certainly watched the video at least a hundred times and it was horrible to watch. Um, This kid was from our neighborhood and, um, you know, my kids, despite a lifetime of being in a family, both our kids came to us pretty young and um, they still needed 
me and us to reassert we see this and we see that it's you even though of course it isn't them but it is <laughs> it's, they understood it and if we didn't we were going to have a hard time they were going to have a hard time trusting each other to have that conversation and you know we run a here at PACT we have a adult adoptee of color group and there's about 50 or 60 people that participate in that every month from across the country again it's a drop-in group it's virtual and um many of them have spent the last year and a half since the murder of George Floyd, talking about anti-Asian violence, all of these things that are happening. And they've been talking about the ways in which they avoid their parents, they have struggle with their parents because they don't feel that they can talk to them about this. And their parents minimize their, their racialized experiences. And what that results in is a lack of closeness as they move into the adult years. And I don't think any of us adopted hoping for that. So to me, what that always reminds me of is why it's so important that I never stop those conversations with my kids, that we need to have them. Even when they're saying, just stop, mom, and we're sick of this, we don't need to talk about it. They need to know it's on my mind for me, not just for them. Right. I'm not doing them a favor. The world isn't okay with me as long as it's racist. And it is. So, right. <laughs> right. And I love, I really love the framing around like thinking of takeaways from stuff for parents. It's the, 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 the naming of the value piece. This is a value we hold. It That's is right. not a value everybody holds. And so you will encounter people and situations and places that, that if we're not doing our work, you know, short and right. up or whatever, they'll, it'll chip away. It'll just chip away, right? If you're left to respond to this bias and these other people's values, um, you know, without armor, I had a previous guest, Dr. Um, Finney, we were talking about um, children of color schooling in predominantly white institutions. And she talked about racialized armor that, that like, <laughs> and that, and that you can teach your kids that you are preparing them. You can know that you are packing their toolbox, that you are to prepare them for the systems and people in the world who don't share our values. That doesn't mean the whole world, right? Because there's this thing about whiteness that has a just world belief, right? And that, and that, that's right. That wants and an individual, to, yes. if you're a good person, nothing bad's going to happen to you. Yeah. I mean, that's not even true for white people, right. honestly. But, but, but it, we tend to embrace that notion of sort of this, you know, the rugged individual that's going to do the right thing and therefore have a good, happy ending. And, and, um, and that just totally isn't going to work for oppressed groups. It just, it just doesn't. <laughs> and we have to be in reality about that in order to prepare our kids in the same way children cannot run in the street and remain safe. They can't. It's right. just the reality. Cars are bigger. Right? It's just as simple as that. And it's not a debate. We don't need to debate it. We need to figure out how to make sure they stay safe. And if that means we raise our voice in a sharp tone when they jump into the street to chase that ball, oh, who cares? Right. <laughs> I mean, right. If that's what it took, you know, right. then that's what it takes. They're still alive. That's yeah. what it takes for them to be successful in life. Number one, they have to remain alive. Yeah. <laughs> then we follow with more things. Of course, we want them to be happy and all the things, but... Right. Yeah, no, there's a fundamental safety piece. and the closeness to us. I mean, it's all of it. It's the, it's the feeling 100%. about themselves. It is being able to deflect the racism to where, to the problem, you know, that the problem is out there. So we want you to deflect right. it and not, it's not, in, it's not you. And because we know kids of color can do internalize, in fact, all people of color, there's internalized racism they too are taking in the messages of the world that say somehow, you know, black and brown people are uh, more challenged in all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. There's some truth to that. But very often, people of color internalize that as it must be something about me. 
instead of being willing to look and being taught to look for the out external reasons, this doesn't mean that they're not being responsible for the things that are about them. We all should be, but it, but there's, it's also true that there's certain differences among all different types of people and that we have to acknowledge that the child, therefore the challenges are different. And, and of course our kids also have to be bilingual, if you will. They have to learn how to code switch in a way that allows them to connect and feel authentic in connecting to not only our families, which is critical and essential, but also to their heritage communities, which is also critical and essential. And it's easy to go overboard in one direction or another and forget that they actually need both to feel healthy. I remember sitting in a room once with a 30 something year old who was just about done with her MSW, so her social work degree, smart woman, black woman, uh, who was a transracial adoptee and had grown up in Eastern Massachusetts, which I gather is fairly white. And, um, and she was in this room with a bunch of our counselors because she had come to one of our camps and she was gonna do some work there. And she was doing some training with them to talk about what it had meant to her to grow up in a predominantly white space. And she was sort of getting teary. And I mean, the, the counselors, and, and the counselors, by the way, are 99% people of color, most of whom are black also, as she was, remember? So she's telling her story. And at one point she says in front of all of these people, that this is the largest group of Black people she's ever been around in her life. 30-something in her life. So first of all, imagine if that were true for you. You know, I try to imagine if as a woman, I had never been in a room filled with only women. What would that mean to me? It would deep, mean many deep things to me, I feel, about my own sense of confidence and comfort with that particular one of my identities. But it was so beautiful because the counselors, some of them started to get tears in their eyes. And as the thing wrapped up, people came up to her and literally just laid hands on her. I mean, that experience, she's talked to me since about what that experience meant to her, to be embraced by her heritage community, to have to wait till you're 30 something to experience that is not right. And maybe she never would have if she hadn't been brave enough to come into that space and say that in front of that group, which I don't think necessarily everybody could do, right? We took right. a lot of courage for her to say that. And you know, we don't want our kids to, to lose that piece, <laughs> which means we have to be uh, we have to be brave right. going in places that are not necessarily going to welcome us, are not necessarily going to acknowledge us, and certainly aren't going to reflect us. Right? right? We can't ask our kids to be the only one in these mostly white spaces. We need to, most of the time, we need to be entering black and brown spaces where we're the only ones. And that's a big experience if you haven't done it before. <laughs> absolutely will influence right. your, your understanding of the world just go see a movie go see the same movie in a mostly white audience and a mostly black and brown one totally different experience in my experience and mm. and and very useful to those of us who haven't had a lot of practice with that but our kids are practicing it every minute every of day and i think that's a good you know i can talk for hours and hours but in looking at wrapping up this episode i'd love to have you back um <laughs> is that I think that's another really poignant place to finish, that that it takes bravery. And if we're thinking our kids are going to be the ones to learn how to handle this, um, we wouldn't ask that of them in so many other areas, right? That it's no. continuing to hold your feet in the fire, continuing to be uncomfortable, to commit to being uncomfortable, to be able to accordion in and out of comfort around no. these issues. And, and, and maybe accordion tolerate according in and out of closeness with your kids sometimes discussing it and whether or not they think it's necessary right. and did they see things the same way that 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 we that trusting the flow of the accordion in terms of like they come back in and we want them 
not to split or sever or divide right. that there is an there is truly a need for authenticity and integration and that right. we are not doing the hard work to have conversations you know and the takeaways for me are if parents are looking for something really concrete we had a lot of them tucked in there but but specifically like when you get back into your car with your kids not always has to be the car or back into the kitchen Absolutely. What did you literally think? What did we just notice? And maybe it's we noticed there were no people of color in the space we were just exactly. in. So that like, what do we exactly. think that's about? Why are none of the coaches in the rec league this? Or why are none of the quarterbacks on television that? Like, that's like right. sort of a moment to say, what did you just see? What do you notice? I'm not, and also be okay saying, I don't really know why that is. Let me see what I can learn about. It's got that's to right. have something to do. Or with we can learn together. Learn. Or we can ask someone, and if we don't know anyone, then we're going to have to do something about that. Yes. So we have people that ask, right? And even further than that, Laura, I would say for me, you know, one of the things, a lot of times people will ask me, how often should I be talking about race? As a white person, every day is my answer. Every day. Not necessarily always with my kids, but every day I need the practice. So I need to move into it in white spaces, in black and brown spaces, and with my kids. And that means I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to sometimes offend people. All the things are going to happen. And I'm still going to keep doing it. I'm not going to get scared enough to say, oh, okay, I just won't bother with that. I'm going to keep doing it. And with my kids, I feel like if my kids don't roll their eyes some of the time saying, mom, you talk about this too much, I may not be talking about it enough. And I, I know a lot of people may not love that answer, but that's my personal belief and mantra. And I, I feel like my kids need to know that I think this matters a great deal because the, the world is telling them and my world, my white world is telling them that it doesn't matter that we can all love anyone and we don't care what color everybody is, but how can you see me if you don't actually see me, which includes my color? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, thank you, Beth. That's a lovely, a lovely place to kind of wrap up. And I'm, I'm honored <laughs> that you're here and I look forward to I'm honored back. to be part of it. And I'm glad if people, you know, any way that PAC can help yes. families like ours is important. And that's what I was going to say. PAC Adoption Agency, take a look, offer amazing webinars, groups for all different members of the constellation, honoring that's the right. first families, honoring adoptive families of color. Today we focused on transracial adoption, but yeah, webinars, camps, classes, conversations, groups, really kind of thought leaders and learners thought leading learners around, around <laughs> this stuff, if that makes sense to call it that. So maybe we need to make a new tagline tag on our website. <laughs> so, thank you very much. Um, thank Beth, you. And I'm, I'm glad you were here. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. Just a quick note here at the end to say I am so glad you joined and I hope you are too. And if you'd like to connect with me more, come take a look at my website, www.drlauraanderson.com. There you can join my newsletter, keep in touch and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation uh, and Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today.